Welcome to the Only One Business Show with me, your host, James Nathan, chatting to some of the UK's leading business professionals, sharing tips, insights, and advice on how to create amazing customer experiences whilst building bigger, better, and more profitable businesses as a result. What can you do in your business today and in the years to come to truly delight your clients? What exceptional experiences can you give them to take away and cherish? How can you delight the most important person in the world? Satisfaction makes you one of many. Delighting clients makes you the only one. And you can't be just one. You have to be the only one. Hello and welcome to the Only One Business Show with me, your host, James Nathan. Today in the studio, I've got a fantastic guest and going to hopefully have a completely different slant on things. This person is a professional copywriter and she has been her entire working life. She started in the corporate world where she was a senior manager reporting directly to the board of a multi-million pound company. She was flying all over the world on expenses and driving a very flash two-seater convertible as her company car. These days, she spends a third of her time writing copy for her clients directly on a freelance basis, and the other two-thirds travelling up and down the UK, sometimes overseas, training people how to write better and speaking about how to get their message across more clearly. She hates tea, alarm clocks and shoes, but she loves dancing, scuba diving and making people laugh. Please welcome Jackie Barry. Jackie, hi, how are you? Hello, I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm fantastic, thank you. I've, I've now I've, I've got a problem with my British stereotype because you don't like tea. No, I don't like tea, and there is a story behind that. When I was sixteen, I used to work in a local department store on Saturdays, and I was in the staff canteen. I had to make tea for four hundred and fifty employees using a <laughs> giant tea bag and a massive urn, and the smell right. of it got in my hair and in my clothes, and I haven't been able to stand it ever since. Do you know what? Uh, it's, uh, now that makes sense. I'll, 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 let, I'll let you off the hook there. But where are you today? Because I know you travel a lot. Are you are you at home or are you away? I'm actually at my home base, which is Beckenham in Kent. But last uh-huh. week I was in Birmingham. Tomorrow I'll be in Bristol. Next week I've got Manchester. So every week I am somewhere, usually running a training course or talking to people about how to communicate more clearly. Okay, fantastic. So you talk about copy. Obviously, that's your big thing. What do people do wrong? What, what, are the, what are the kind of main things that people just don't get right when they're trying to talk about themselves and get their message across? Well, I think it's the exactly how you phrased it in the question is that they talk about themselves. They do what I call top-down copywriting. It's all right. about them where the secret of copywriting success is putting yourself in the reader's shoes and writing from their point of view. And I call that bottom-up copywriting. And top-down copywriting is therefore starting with I, us, we, our, using the company name, telling the company story. No one really cares about that. They only care about what's in it for me. So all you need to do is cross out all those words and replace them with the words you and your, which are the Mm -hmm. most powerful words in the English language apart from a person's own name and that is really the job of a copywriter it's translating what the business writes from their perspective into the words that their reader is going uh, going to respond to 
But that's much harder than you make it sound, I think, because I talk about this a lot as well. I talk about the most important person in the world, who is the person you're, well, we all are to ourselves. We're the most important person in the world, and we don't care what people do. We care what they can do for us. And so when you read this stuff about, you know, it's all about me, 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 um, of course, it doesn't resonate. But then when you ask people to write um, from the other person's perspective, they find it really hard. What, why? Why do they, do you think? It's their own self-interest. It's also what they've seen a million times in everybody else's writing, so they think that's the way it's done. I think to give an example, I've seen a lot of business leaflets that start with their logo at the top and then we were founded in 1905 and then we bought this machine and moved to this Mm -hmm. new building and appointed this CEO. And if you're lucky at the end, it will say, and now today we do this, that and the other. And if you're lucky, there'll be an address and a phone number at the end. And all they need to do to translate that into from normal writing into copywriting is turn it upside down and start with where Uh they are today and end up with how they got there. And that applies to LinkedIn profiles. It applies to about me pages on a website. It uh, relates to any kind of company history. Um, Yes, there are lots of tips, tricks, techniques I've learned over the many, many years I've been in copywriting. But as you say, it's all about putting the reader at the center of the communication. It's, um, you make it sound so simple, um, and I guess you know when you know it is. But uh, I also find that that people, I think, for all the reasons you've mentioned, just find this much more difficult than it needs to be. And actually, it's just sitting back and taking a fresh approach, isn't it? Sometimes saying, "Hang on a second, this is this doesn't read right," because when you were talking then and saying, "You know, we we were established and what have you," by the time you got to the third sentence, I was ready to flick over to the next page, not interested anymore. And I think that's the, that's the problem, isn't it? I think that uh, my training in all this started years ago when I qualified as a journalist, because when you read a news story, it will always start with the who, what, when, where, why, how at the top of the page. And back in the days of print journalism, the person that wrote the article and the person that laid out the page were two different people. And if the article didn't fit, it gets cut from the bottom up, which means you cannot hide your punchline at the end because there's a risk it will be lost. Ah, now, the other reason news is written that way is because people consume news really quickly. As soon mm-hmm. as they've read the, enough of the article to get the point, they click away or they turn the page. So again, that means you can't bury your best bit at the end. And the best bit is all the what's in it for me from the reader's point of view. So this applies to copywriting in that you have to put your most important information at the top. Uh-huh. And your least important information at the bottom. And the least important information is probably when the company was founded, unless that is of direct relevance to your audience. Right. And has that changed now? With with because you mentioned all the you know websites and LinkedIn and things like that. Is this has it changed in the digital world, or is it just the same? It's just just more important. I think the psychology of human beings hasn't changed with the digital world. And the lessons and the research about marketing and what works in copywriting point of view is all the same as it was 50, 60 years ago. The digital world just means you've got more information going into more places. And I think more of it is being self-generated and therefore the quality generally has dropped because so many people haven't got the common sense to work out the things that I'm explaining in this conversation um, or the experience or the knowledge or the training. And therefore, they're getting bad advice and picking up bad ideas from other people's mm. bad writing. 
there's a there's a real issue with that. I heard someone speaking recently, and they said the, the the beauty of the internet is it gives everyone a voice. The problem with the internet is it gives everyone a voice. Exactly. Uh, and I think you know you have to be. We, we almost get to the stage now where we don't believe what we read until it's proven to us. And I think there's there's some good in that, but also that's that makes cutting through the nonsense very difficult, um, especially when if, if you want some quick information, you want to be able to just find it. And I guess then you need to make sure that your sources to start with are very good. And it's not, you know, Tom, Dick or Harry sat in the back room just knocking out whatever they believe um, and taking it as gospel. You're right. There is a good thing about social media in that it's given the power to the people. And that is just emphasising what I've said about a business owner or a brand that has a responsibility to communicate clearly about what it is they do um, and yet recognizing that the power the decision making is with their audience and it, again that's even more important to use the words you and your as much as you possibly can there's an old McKinsey trick I, I talk about sometimes you know the big management consultancy when they talk to their clients and they always talk about us and we they never talk about you and I um, and I think that's a, that's a kind of similar thing, isn't it? It's bringing it to um, using the psychology of human beings to make the point more sensible, make it fit better for the other people, make them feel a part, uh, well, a part of things rather than <laughs> a part of things. Um, I think the other we... trend, sorry, I'm stepping on your question again. The other trend is about openness, transparency, um, personality, even if that's of a company rather than an individual. All that has changed in the last decade since social media hit the mainstream. Uh, but it all reinforces what has always been the case in proper marketing and advertising. Which has got to be a great thing, I think. You, you mentioned personality there. Um, you know, bringing people to life, bringing the businesses to life is, is something that, uh, that copywriting really can do. How do you make your copywriting customer friendly? How do you make it client friendly? The main things are, as I've already said, turning it upside down so that it starts with what's in it for the reader and ends with the least important information to them, making it bottom up, not top down in its perspective so that it's all user focused. Where, where does service fit in your world, Jackie? How do you see service and how, does it, how can you see how you help improve it? Well, when you first asked me this question about service I went straight to the definition and I looked it up and as a noun the word service is the action of helping or doing work for someone right it's also a system of supplying a public need such as transport communications or utilities now in that context I'm in the service delivery world because I help people by helping them to communicate more clearly for their customers um, it's right. also a verb. To service means to perform routine maintenance or repairs. And yep. of a male animal, it means to mate with a female animal. <laughs> so, there's two things there. Firstly, I wasn't expecting you to talk about mating animals, uh, but that's why I love podcasting because it brings up some fun stuff. But I wasn't—I was waiting for a definition. I thought if a copywriter doesn't look up the definition of service, then something is very wrong. Jackie, thank you. That's I can tick that off. Well, there is something else on that that I thought about culturally. The word service around the world has a different level of meaning because mm -hmm. here in the UK. You've got this hangover from 100 years ago of the idea of being in service, where you right. were a maid servant, for example, mm -hmm. to the landed gentry. 
And I think there's a bit of a value judgment around service here, which is probably why in this country, we're not quite as good at it as some other parts of the world. And I know that in places like the US and Singapore, where I've been lucky enough to visit, Mm -hmm. a waiter or a waitress, it has an honor to serve people. And it, it just intrigued me how this kind of cultural legacy has impacted the behaviors of some companies and individuals in this country compared with others because somehow here i think some people still find it a bit demeaning the idea of serving somebody else i yes it's something i've talked about a lot recently and uh you know cultural differences impact everything um but there is very much a master servant upstairs downstairs kind of attitude to things and i guess um, it, it, it's only natural that it impacts the, the world around us. But in in other countries, I'm going to exclude Australia where I'm from because it's basically, uh, you know, just a, a different version of Britain. Um, the well, Although we don't have the class system and the structure, there's still a kind of, you know, oh, you're only a waiter kind of mentality, which, which annoys me. But if you go to France or you go to Italy or even in America, um, you know, it's seen as a legitimate career. It yes, is a career it's a choice. profession. Yeah, and one of which you earn, learn to be better and there's levels and, you know, so um, so I think that does is a problem in Britain and it, it, but it impacts everything because we, we talk, when we think of servers, we think of waitresses or waiters or whatever it might be. But actually, I don't understand why serving someone and serving them at the best of your ability is anything but a fantastic thing to do. And in the world that I'm in, it's more about uh, I'm at the point where it's all about sharing my expertise. And Mm -hmm. I've spent a long time learning about copy and getting good at it. And now I'm just telling everybody everything I know, all these junior and aspiring and upcoming copywriters or all these businesses that want to write their own text. um, I'm just sharing it all because... I guess looking ahead, there'll be a time when I'm not here. So they need to know all this stuff that I've learned. And that's how I'm serving the world in a way. But that, that's a really great thing to do. And it, and it makes it, it makes the world a better place. And we all, we all do it in different ways, even if it's I mean, in, in, in your professional life, you've obviously got a huge amount of experience, which is which is extremely valuable, but also very shareable. But that might, you know, we value when people share any experience, don't we? I, I look at my, my, my wife's granddad's not alive anymore, but he was a fantastic gardener. Um, you know, and he loved to share how he got his tomatoes so good. Uh, you know, it's the same thing. It's taking your experience and helping the world become better. And if we all did that, it would it would be <laughs> be a world be a nicer place, a, a much like nicer place. I think I'm making the world simpler because it saves people wasting time when they can read a clear communication and get the point mm-hmm. very easily. And everyone's so busy these days. But if people can communicate simply, other people can understand it simply, and everything can just chug along in a nice, easy, and calm and more peaceful way. You've talked about up top down and, and bottom up communication, but you've just hit on something a little bit different there in terms of making it simple um, and easy to digest. Because, it, and I'm thinking about that, thinking, well, a lot of things are written in such a complicated way. Businesses try to to show their cleverness at times. Mm. where actually what they're doing is baffling people into not working with them. Is that a big problem? 
I see this a lot when um, working with recruiters, where I work with Mitch Sullivan to train them how to write better job ads. Right. And often if you get a junior recruiter who is writing for, I don't know, a C-suite job, Mm -hmm. they seem to imagine they've got to use lots of long words and archaic language to sound more professional or corporate than they really are. Right. And yet, what really busy people appreciate is clear and simple language. No one gets offended by a message that's easily understood, where some people will get offended and you'll lose them if you use words that are complex or you make mistakes in your grammar. So the secret is actually to write as you speak. Yeah, and in, and with the advertising, that's you know the, the niceties of, well, I, I talk about this quite a bit to my recruitment clients as well as you could imagine but the niceties of or the, the the structure of grammar should I say is not as important as writing something that people would actually apply to no in marketing and advertising it's practically compulsory to start a sentence with and or but <laughs> Yet my English teachers at school would have had me hung drawn and quartered I think if I look at my blog post, Jackie, you probably go through them now and say, James, for God's sake, stop that. Um, I do that all the time. And is one of my favourite ways to start a sentence. <laughs> and I've thought of an answer to your earlier question now about one of the changes since the world's gone so digital. Uh-huh. And that is when you write in prose, you can write long convoluted sentences and very dense with not a lot of spacing. So if you imagine a book or a newspaper, you've got a lot of text and yes. not very many images always. And online, because people read differently online than they do on print, in that online the light is shining directly into your eyes, whereas in print the light is bouncing off your shoulder and off the page back into your face. So reading online, it's harder on the optic nerve it's hard, and it slows down comprehension. Mm-hmm. What that means for your writing is you must have short sentences, short paragraphs, short words, lots of white space, subheadings you've got to help people navigate their way around the information in a much cleaner and simpler way where in print you can just put all your words out on paper and you'll still get people who start at the beginning and read all the way to the end is there option well i was just when you were speaking then i was thinking about business books because i read a lot of them and i'm going to talk about and yours because i know you've got a new book coming out soon which is very exciting when we write business books, should we be taking some of the lessons from digital and putting them into the print? Um, well, that rather depends because a print book can still be read um, without a lot of the the sort of stylistic and typographic suggestions that I've just mentioned. Yeah. What, what I have, however, found with business books is that more people read them on a Kindle or similar device than will mm. read them in print. Yeah. So a print book, in my experience, makes a brilliant gift or competition prize or the best business card in the world to position you as an authority yeah. because you're an author. But the people who consume that content, business people, tend to, I think now, predominantly buy it online so that they can read it on their Kindle device, in which case, well, it will reformat it by itself depending on their settings, but it will just be scrolling down. And again, you need lots of short, easily digestible content so that people can see and communicate, um, get your message on a screen. 
It's an interesting change that that book reading thing. I know that uh, you know I spend a lot of time on tube trains, and uh, it used to be that you could tell what the the book of the time was, you know, what what the novel was people were reading, or what the business book that people were reading, because you could see it. And now you just see the back of a Kindle or a phone. It doesn't work quite the same way, which is a bit of a shame, really. Um, it's a shame for the authors because they're not getting their marketing out there. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. But I'm also one of these awful people that I've got a big stack of. Oh, I've got loads and loads of print books in my office here. Um, but if someone gives me a book, I will then go and buy it on Kindle <laughs> and read it like that because that's how it's easy for me. Or or pick up an audio book on, on, you know, and listen to it that way. Um, and so the print book sits there looking beautiful, <laughs> very rarely, unless I want to go back to it. If I want to go back to it and annotate it or to pick out bits and pieces to use later somewhere else, then I use the print book. Um, yes, they are easier to flick through sometimes and to. Oh, much, much. Yeah. And e- even on. Um, in fact, I find I find that actually going back to something well, an audiobook's almost impossible to do that with, even though you can annotate oh. it. But um, even on a Kindle, just flipping through to the right bit is is pretty much impossible. Um, yeah, even though they have search features and such like built in, and you can highlight yeah. sections, it's again the way the human brain works. My degree is psychology, and psychology and copywriting are very closely linked. In that, what you're trying to do is use your written word to influence behaviour. And psychologically, um, human beings' memory strategies are often triggered by a visual thing. So, for example, a post-it note on a page in a book, or let me think of a different example. You know, if you want to take something the next time you go out, you'll leave it by the front door. Yes. Or you put it on the stairs ready to carry up. That's because it's a a mnemonic. I can't even say it. (laughs) I can spell it. I can't say it. Uh, because your brain will see the thing visually and then that yep. will trigger your memory. Oh, I've got to take that object to that place. And I think that's what you miss out with the visual, the virtual world. It works for adults. I know for 12-year-old boys, if you put something on the stairs, they are very easily and ha- happy to just walk straight over the top <laughs> of it. <laughs> Uh, there was a, there was a, a, a I just just jogged my memory, but I saw I think I saw something on Facebook um, recently, which was a picture that said, "No one is more optimistic than the mother that leaves something on the bottom of the stairs, hoping yes, somebody else will carry it up." <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. let, let's let's talk about your book because I'm a bit excited about this. Um, you've got it, when's it coming out? It should be out in June. 2019, fingers crossed. Fantastic. And what are you going to call it? Have you got a working title? Or have you got the real title ready? I've got a real title, and you'll be one of the first to know. It's called The Experiential Speaker. No, it's not. It's called Experiential Speaking. I'm, I'm going to have to get that right on time. <laughs> That's uh, Experiential <laughs> Speaking. I love the sound of that. I love anything that has experience in the title. Um, and where it's come from is that... I co-founded the Southeast region of the Professional Speaking Association. Okay. And in that role, I was often called upon to run an active networking activity with our members at our events. Mm-hmm. And I would often do something really creative that I'd either invented or I'd picked up over the years from back in the day when I was a manager in the corporate world or from courses I've attended as a delegate or, as I say, things I've just been inspired by. Mm-hmm. from TV or, or playground games and just invented. Anyway, a couple of years ago, uh, colleagues from the PSA said, well, I, what book do you get your ideas from? And I said, no book, I get them out of my own head. And they said, well, you must write the book then. 
And that's what I've done. And it's about 30 activities that speakers and trainers and facilitators and presenters can use to engage their audience. They're all low tech, so they involve paper tearing, throwing, running about. Uh, they are, I'm told, um, I can say quite unique, but the word quite doesn't belong with the word unique. <laughs> it, but the feedback I've had from people that have seen it so far are that there's of the, I don't know, 20-something activities, the majority they've never seen before. Fantastic. Um, but it comes from being a writer. It comes from thinking, what is the best way? What's the best channel to get your message across? Because sometimes it's the written word on paper. Sometimes it's the written word on screen. Sometimes it's the spoken word from the stage or from the front of the room. And sometimes it's an activity that the audience engages in. Because by engaging in the activity, they will remember the experience more than they will remember anything that you say or do. Well, and then they will remember the lesson you learn from it. And that's the key difference with all these icebreakers. They're not just for fun, although they are fun. They are actually because at a psychological level, they embed the message. Now, I'm trying to think. Of, uh, there's a quote that's come into my head, and I think it might have been Tom Peters. who said something like, experiences are memorable no matter how trivial. Um, yeah, that's not a quote I'm familiar with, but I know Aristotle said something about. You know, Abraham Lincoln say it, and also <laughs> probably Henry Ford as well. <laughs> There's so many people quoted for that. Well, they supposedly said certain things, but the truth is that we do remember experiences and they stick with us, and uh, which is part of the reason my business is called the James Nathan Experience. It's about what do they take away to love and cherish? What do they remember? Um, and how do you help them do that? And I think the fact that you've put this into a book is fabulous because we all love to learn from the people who do things best. Uh, well, you know. thank you. And so, well, it's it's very true. And if if you know, to it's not often it's very difficult at times to have time with people who have these these great ideas or to actually get them to to take their time to speak to you which is why i'm so thankful for the number of people who've come on this show um who take time out to discuss their their great ideas or the things that make a difference for them well there's a couple of things i would say one thing is the book itself is interactive in that and why it's taken so long is that each chapter links to a video of me demonstrating the activity ah. So the print book, people will have to type in the right. bespoke URL, but in the ebook, they can just click a button and having read the chapter that explains how to run it, why, what could to expect and all that, they can then click through to a web page that has a video and they can see it in action, see the audience reaction, hear them um, running about and enjoying themselves. And therefore, when they choose to do a version of it for themselves, they've got much better chance. Very cool. I really like the sound of that. But the other thing is it fits very closely with your key topic, which is about customer experience and how that has become um, um, massive on the agenda at the moment as a differentiator, whether you're selling goods or services, it's all about what the customer gets rather than what the business thinks they want to offer. Do you know, I think that the, you mentioned very early on in this conversation that the things, you know, the psychology of people hasn't changed um, and the, it's just the sort of shop window, I guess, it's different at times. Um, and, and service is exactly the same. Service has never been any different. It's just that people are, are starting to take notice that actually there are businesses we talk about and there are others we don't. And the ones we talk about are for good reason. And if we can bottle that reason, we can, we can learn from it. Um, and that people actually enjoy personalised service. You know, if I, I remember going to a, to the fruiterer with my grandmother in Melbourne and, you know, walking into the place and he treated her like a long-lost relative. 
you know, great friend and we've got these tomatoes and here are the strawberries and I know you like your, you, you know, you like these a little bit greener or whatever it might be. Um, and it was just a very lovely experience and there would have, it didn't really matter what he charged. I don't think she cared um, unless he'd gone silly with his pricing. She would have gone back there every time. A similar story. I went to a restaurant with my parents for lunch recently and six months before I had a group booking there for a school reunion and the chap recognised me, which I was amazed by, made a big fuss of me and my parents, really looked after us beautifully and I'm now more inclined to go again. The trouble is my parents have been loads and they were pig sick because he didn't recognise oh. me. <laughs> They've never been a big block booking uh, like I well, had. You so, must be a much um, more memorable person. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know about that. These little things do make such a difference though, don't they, when they just say hello, Jackie. Hi, Jackie, how are you? Nice to see you again. Yeah, and uh, it does give you that warm, fuzzy feeling, which is the experience that you want your customers to have, no matter what service or product you're selling them. Uh, and it links to another uh, twist in marketing that has become really important these days, and that is all about social proof. But if you include reviews, testimonials, recommendations, star ratings, any of those things, when you are trying to promote yourself, mm-hmm. people will believe those because what other people say is much more compelling than anything you say about yourself. If you're a hotel and you write about your wonderful venue, everyone's going to know you're after the money in their pocket and think, well, you would say that, wouldn't you? Because people are <laughs> of course. Whereas yeah. if somebody else says, yes, this place was amazing and the service was fantastic, they're much more likely to believe it. And I know there is cynicism around reviews too, because they can be abused, mm-hmm. but it's a, marketing technique that I think has come to the top of the agenda in the last decade. Well, we just have to see the kind of the the, the growth of things like TripAdvisor and Yelp and, and those sort of, you know, and Glassdoor in the recruitment world um, where, you know, if you don't know yourself, you go and look to see, or even when you're buying from Amazon, you know, you look at reviews and there'll be a couple of, you know, odd ones which will fall out the way. But if the general gist is good, we're more inclined to, to, to go ahead with it. And that links back to something you said earlier about people need that analytical mindset in that not everything that is put on the internet or indeed in print is true. Therefore, you've got to have the ability to sift through all the information that's out there and make your own decision about what makes sense. And good writing will help you, well, will help the reader make a good decision for the business, won't it? Which is why you have to back up every claim you make with facts. And on occasion, numbers will sell harder than words. Very interesting. We're going about to jump into a yet another realm of advertising where, um, you know, you look at the, I'm fascinated by L'Oreal the hair care business um, mm-hmm. and their adverts, two-minute copy or minute or whatever they have on, on the telly these days, they managed to cram in absolutely everything, including some very pointless statistics just to prove a point that, uh, you know, people will see statistics and go, oh, well, if 86% of 12 people thought their hair looked nicer, then they'll buy that product. <laughs> um, but they squeeze the lot in. Jackie, I don't want to go on and on and on, but I'm having such a lovely time chatting to you. I'd love you, though, to leave us with one thing, one one point or one golden nugget that people can do to make their businesses better today and better for the future. What would that be? It would just be to remember it's all about them and it's not about you. 
Fabulous. Jackie, thank you so much for your time. It's been great chatting to you. And I hope you have a fabulous day and I hope uh, the people listening have got some really interesting, great thoughts to take away and some nice things that they could perhaps do now to change their business. Thank you. I hope you really enjoyed this episode of The Only One Business Show and I look forward to sharing your company again very soon. If you'd like to subscribe, please do so wherever you pick up your podcasts and in the meantime, have a great day. Bye for now.